0: Philippians chapter number three today, if you've got your copy of God's Word, Philippians chapter number three as we continue our series through Philippians entitled Partners in the Gospel. Now I know that we are kind of going in between series here, I'll preach and I've got a series through Philippians and Pastor will preach and he's got a series through Joshua, so just kind of hang with us, you never know what you're going to get from Sunday to Sunday, but it's probably going to be either Philippians or Joshua For a little bit. So uh, we're back in Philippians today. We're studying the book verse by verse, trying to get the intent of what Paul was writing to the church of Philippi, knowing that if God inspired it and preserved it, then he meant it to be written to us as well. And I hope that uh, we will take uh, good admonishment from it and teaching and encouragement and challenge today from the text of scripture. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17. We'll read through the end of verse 21. The Bible says, Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them. Mark them, he says, Which walk so as ye have us for an example. Then catch this. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation, he's saying, listen, if you're a believer, our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that word conversation in verse 20. That literally means our citizenship. Where we belong, where we're headed, it's heaven. Verse 21. When we get there, here's what's going to happen. Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. The title of the message today is this. Be careful who you follow. I want you to imagine that you decided to train in 2019 to run a full marathon. That's 262 Miles. Now, if you're like me, that's purely imaginative. It's not realistic because I'm not a runner and maybe you're not either, though I know we have some in here. But I want you to imagine for a moment that you set it as a personal goal to run 26.2 miles and the race is going to be, let's say, in Dallas, Texas. Let's imagine that you go out and you buy a brand new pair of running shoes. You get fitted and they fit great. You even go on a diet so as to get your body in good running shape. And then you begin a a 20-week, kind of a beginner's training program to run this marathon. Tomorrow is when you start and you're going to run three miles. Then you're going to rest on four miles. And then on Wednesday, you're going to do some cross training. And then on Thursday, you're going to rest. And on Friday, you're going to run another three miles. And on Saturday is going to be your long run. And the closer you get to the race, the longer these workouts are as you keep building endurance. Now let's fast forward about 20 weeks. And you trained well. You've lost 25 or 30 pounds. You're feeling great. And you drive up to Dallas, Texas the day before the race. And you go to Olive Garden so you can load up on carbs. And you got a lot of energy when you wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning. The next day it's race day. You get on the starting line with hundreds or maybe thousands of other runners who have the same exact goal in mind. They're just as stupid as you are. You lace up your shoes. There's a ton of energy. People are just excited. And maybe the gun sounds. I don't know what they do. I've never been to one. And you take off. This is your first race, so you're not going to be in the lead. You kind of settle into the middle of the pack, and you kind of establish a pace that is comfortable. In fact, you notice you're running a little bit faster because of the adrenaline. And you're actually having fun. You, you almost wish it was this atmosphere, the 20 weeks of training. It's incredible. It's incredible you really feel like you're going to be able to do it. You get halfway through the race and you stop at a little station where you can tighten up your shoes and maybe grab a little bit of a snack and some water. And you head out for the second half of the race where people are lined along the side of the streets holding out little glasses of water and ready to give you an encouraging word. And you'll go and you'll drink water. You'll grab another one, throw it on your head, and you'll go drink one and throw it on your head. And people, you can do it, you can do it. And you're feeling energy. And you get to the last turn and you see your family. And they're holding signs saying, you can do it, Daddy. And we're proud of you, Mommy. Go for it. And you turn that last corner and you got three-quarters of a mile. You can see the tape uh, stretched across the road. It's waiting for you to cross. And you got people on this side of the street in bleachers and people on this side of the street in bleachers. And as soon as you get to the last, I don't know, quarter of a mile or so, you, you you can hear music playing loudly over speakers and you're not even tired anymore. You can see the finish line, and you go, and you cross the finish line, and people are cheering, and you're expecting to get a medal around your neck, and you're expecting to get pictures with your family, but none of that happens. Something weird happens. One of the race marshals comes and grabs you and escorts you to a nearby tent. As you walk into the tent, you notice that you're not the only one in there. There's Several runners in there, a couple dozen runners in there that have finished before you and they're not happy. Some of them are crying, some of them are screaming, some of them are just in despair. And the race marshal delivers some tragic news to you when he says, I'm sorry to inform you that you actually didn't finish the race. You reply, what do you mean I didn't finish the race? And the Marshall says, due to the incorrect placing of the route in some spots where we weren't as clear as we should, and we'll take responsibility for that. Only the lead runner followed the correct route. Unfortunately, the second and third place runners were not within the line of sight of the lead vehicle, the escort motorcycle. This resulted in all who followed taking in incorrect route through a small section of the race and as a result the marshal tells you you have finished 866 feet short of a full marathon and we can't award you with a medal but we'll give you 25% off the next race. If you're imagining how awful you would feel at that moment then you can imagine how awful the 5,000 runners felt who were told the same exact thing after running just 866 feet short of 26.2 miles in the Marathon of the North in Sunderland, just located in Northeast England. It's a true story. The runners were simply following the person in front of them. It wasn't their fault. In fact, the only person who finished the full 26.2 miles was the lead runner who was following the escort vehicle through the entire race. And the moral of the story is this, be careful who you follow because who you follow determines how you finish. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to tell his dear friends in this church at Philippi. He's going to tell them, listen, be careful who you follow. Because who you follow determines how you finish. And I'm using the race analogy because the last message Paul talked about in the text before, he talked about a race himself referring to the Greek games that he was familiar with. And and he told the church, you need to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. And he used this analogy of a race, and he told them they are to press or to strain or to exert maximum effort in order to win the prize, in order to cross the finish line. So what's the prize? Well, we discovered last message in Philippians that the prize is knowing and becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And Paul told them, if you want to earn that prize, if you want to succeed in the race of life, then you're going to need to have two things, he told them. A holy discontent. In other words, don't get satisfied with where you are. And then, on top of that, you are going to need a short-term memory. Don't get caught up in who you used to be. No, you need to continually go forward so that you don't go backwards. And now Paul starts in verse 17, and he's still in the context of this race. And he's going to tell them a third thing they need to do to earn the prize of knowing and becoming more and more like Jesus. To finish the race well, and it has everything to do with who they follow. Who they allow to influence their lives. And Paul cuts right to the chase in verse 17. And he gives us his main point, which is this. Follow those who follow Christ. If you want to run well, if you want to earn the prize, the key is to follow those who are following Christ. And verse 17 says it, brethren, be followers together of me. Paul starts by saying, follow me. Now, at first glance, that appears to be egotistical, doesn't it? I mean, what pastor is going to stand up behind a pulpit and look to his church and say, the first person I want you to pad in your life after is me. And at first, it does appear to be a prideful statement. I would would submit to you it's not for three reasons. Number one, God wouldn't have inspired Paul to put something egotistical in the Holy Scriptures. It was God ordained. Secondly, um, on top of that, here's another reason. He just mentioned in verse 12 that though he's been saved for 30 years up to this point in his life, and he's planted at least nine churches by this point in his life, he admitted himself, I'm still not where I want to be. I haven't crossed the finish line. I don't know Jesus like I really want to know Jesus. I haven't become everything I should be. And so he already admits that he's not everything he should be. And then we can go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11. And we can see where he told another church the same thing. But he added a disclaimer. Look, look at it. He said, be followers of me even as I also am of Christ. Did you get that? Paul is saying this, and his heart is the same for the church of Philippi. I want you to pattern your life after me, only to the extent that I'm following after Jesus. The moment I stop following after Jesus, you stop following after me. And at the same time, Paul was humble enough to acknowledge that he shouldn't be the only example they have. They need to have other mature and spiritual believers around them whose lives they follow. Look at the second part of verse 17. It says, and mark them... Mark, then the Bible says, which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. Paul says, I'm not the only one you should follow after. I want you to locate, mark, put in your scope, other mature believers like Timothy and Paphroditus and others in this church that are going down the right way, that are a little ahead of you in the race. And I want you to follow them too. I think commentator Steve Lawson really summed it up. Look at these words. These are brilliant. Wise is the believer who has several such people in their lives as mentors and leaders. Misguided is the believer who thinks they have no need of these types of influences. Having an array of advanced Christians modeling genuine spirituality will produce a much more balanced, healthy Christian life. Those who have no example wiser and godlier than themselves will aim at nothing and hit hit very little. And those with only one personal example will likely eventually adopt not only that person's strengths, but also their weaknesses. If that quote is true, and it is, let me ask you, who are your spiritual mentors today? Who do you have in your life that is wiser and godlier than you? And do you have more than one? That's very, very important. Paul says, take aim. Mark those that are farther in the race than you are and that are going in the same direction you are and follow them When I begin to think about the vast array of spiritual mentors that I've been given in my life from the Lord, and I've marked personally, there's so many that I could mention in different areas of my life, but I'll give you a couple. Um, My number one influencer in life, and has been for the last 12 years, is my wife. Now, don't think I'm saying that because she's going to get her feelings hurt if I don't put her on the top of the list. Truly, and, and I tell her this all the time, she has made me a better person. But specifically, I mark how she treats people. I love the way she treats people. She's kind, she's gentle, she's a great listener. I love the way she treats me, even at times when I don't deserve it. And I've marked that. She's farther down the road in the race of life in terms of her interpersonal relations than I am. And she helps me. I'm so glad to have Christian parents. My parents are first-generation Christians. I'm so glad God saved their souls put them together, and I'm glad they had me. My parents aren't perfect, but to this day they've followed Christ. And they've served Christ, and they've loved Christ, and they've worshipped Christ. And so long as they do that, I'm going to follow them. I think of other family members like my Uncle Rick and Aunt Candy sitting in here this morning. Some of the godliest lay people I know. Lead people to Christ, give generously to the work of the Lord. The church is their life. They've given themselves to the work of the ministry while still working 40 plus hours a week in their own businesses and their own jobs. And I I, I reverence so many things about them and I'm following them in some areas of my life. I think about the deacons of our church. I've been able to sit in a couple meetings with those guys in the last year or so and I'm so impressed with their love for this place. I'm so impressed with how they counsel and advise and pray for our pastor and their wives. And, and I'm so impressed with their spirits for the Lord and the work of the gospel. I'm marking them men. I'm marking them ladies. I've got a spiritual mentor in the area of soul winning and personal evangelism. I've got a spiritual mentor in my walk with Christ. There's one person specifically I've marked in my life who I watch in their walk with Christ and challenges me. I have some, I have some mentors in the area of parenting, in the area of Financing in the area of personal purity. I've got those people. Do you? None of these people I've mentioned are perfect. They're just a little ahead of me in the race. I can see the back of their jersey. And I'm trying to keep up with them so I don't take a wrong turn. You need to mark those in your church, in your family, marriage, finances, parenting, empty nesters. Deacons, deacons wise, fellowship Bible class leaders, you need to mark those in your church that you can follow as they follow Christ. Then Paul goes on to tell us why this is so important. And he gives us two reasons. One kind of sounds negative at first, and one is very, very inspirational. He says in verse 18 and 19 that we should follow those who follow Christ because we can easily be influenced by the wrong examples. No, just as there are positive examples to emulate, listen, church, there are negative examples to avoid. And Paul, as has been his practice in the book of Philippians, as he's warning these people against bad influences, he's not going to pull any punches. But before we get into Paul's description of these bad examples, it's important to note his tone in verse 18. Look at it. It says this, for many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even more. Weeping. When he talked about the enemies of the cross, listen, Paul wasn't angry. Paul wasn't hateful. Paul was not vindictive. He was compassionate. His heart was grieving. He wasn't even righteously indignant. He was just compassionate, weeping as he's warning his Philippian believers of what he called the enemies of the cross. And he teaches us something here. We ought to stand for truth and we ought to protect the truth and stand against that which is fault. But listen, the tone of our voice should not be hateful, should not be angry, should not be vindictive. Should be compassionate. Passionate, yes, but compassionate as well because you can do the right thing in the wrong way and that makes you wrong. So be careful. And then he goes on to describe them in four different ways. And he says this verse, their end is destruction. No wonder he was weeping. Look at that in verse 19. Whose end is destruction. He's referring to people, church, who, who, who are on the road to eternal separation from God in a real place called hell. Paul loved lost souls. It's no wonder he was weeping as he thought about their eternal destination and he went on to describe them like this, whose God is their belly. In other words, their appetites dictate their lives. Not that they loved all-you-can-eat buffets. Metaphorically, he was speaking about their sensual lust. What felt good in the moment, they did. What looked good in the moment, they did. And then he said this, whose glory is their shame. These bad examples find cause to glory in things of which they ought to be ashamed are you getting this things that ought to make them blush they laugh at things that ought to embarrass them excite them and things that normally would be kept a secret they like to go on social media and brag about and he said these people mind earthly things what does that mean their whole attention Their whole mindset, their way of looking at things is not eternal, it's not for heaven, it's earthly, it's worldly, it's short-sighted, it's for the here and now. And can you see Paul passionately weeping while writing this in a Roman prison house, saying, Church of Philippi, stay on guard. They'll be in your community and they'll be at your workplace and they'll be in your family and they'll find a way into your church and oftentimes they will be wolves in sheep's clothing. Oh, don't be influenced by these enemies of the cross. And I would echo Paul's admonition to the church I love today. Be careful. Be on guard. Stay vigilant. You know why there are bad influences everywhere you go. I'm talking about people whose end is destruction. I'm talking about people whose God is their belly. You know, they like the party scene. They live for the life of personal pleasure. Their actions are gauged by what they feel right, by what feels right in the moment. Those who have been given to their sensual lust. I I would warn you be careful of people whose glory is their shame. They joke about sin, they promote sin, they brag about how drunk they got last weekend, they make women out to be nothing but an object for personal pleasure. Beware of those people. Beware of those who mind earthly things I'm talking about. They live to worship the almighty dollar. They live for the next promotion. They live for the next step of success no matter what it takes to get there, no matter who they hurt on their way. The reason why I'm passionate today about warning you of wrong influences in your life, listen, friend, is because I've seen too many Christians, good Christians, distracted and derailed and disappointed by the wrong influences in their life. I simply don't want you to be one of them. Well, Brother Tyler, I'm kind of past that. Certainly you're preaching to the teenagers. The young adults who are trying to find themselves still, right? Because I, I kind of know who I am by now in my life. And maybe you are sitting there as an adult thinking of your teenage daughter. Or thinking of your little toddler that will grow up in a godless society. What about you, adult? You see, that's why Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Do you see an exception clause with be not deceived if you're 16 and below? No, he used those three words because he anticipated the church he was writing to in Corinth and even the church here. It wasn't going to be a church full of kids. It was going to be a church full of adults who somehow in their mind deceive themselves into thinking they know themselves by now and nothing anybody does affects them and they don't care what people think and nothing, no influences can can corrupt them. But Paul says that's foolish thinking. We never outgrow this propensity to be corrupted by bad influences. I think about it this way. If a serpent, a serpent, can influence Adam and Eve to do wrong and they were perfect, what makes me think Satan can't influence me to do wrong? And if one woman by the name of Bathsheba, who is at least a quarter mile away from King David, who is called a man after God's own heart, can influence in him to be an adulterer and eventually a murderer, what makes me think that some woman in liberal Kansas can't, can't put sexual temptation on me and influence me to, to have an adulter, adulterous affair on my wife? I'm not above that because I'm standing behind the pulpit today. If Esau, Esau, who was given a God-given birthright, An amazing privilege in the Old Testament. He would own two-thirds of the land, get two-thirds of the inheritance, be the head of the household, carry on the spiritual line in the family. Amazing, amazing privilege. If he could be influenced by his own twin brother, his own family member, to give up what he wanted most for just a bowl of soup? What makes me think that my own family members can't influence me to give up what I want most for what I want in the moment? My own family members. And what about Peter sitting around warming his hands around the fire with strangers, people he didn't even know their middle name. He didn't know their kid's name, didn't know their birthdays, didn't have their cell phone number. And they could, they could tempt him and influence him to deny the Jesus he said he would never turn his back on. What makes me think that strangers I don't know on a television show can't influence me or, or, or a stranger, an author, in a book I've never met can't influence me to turn my back on what I believe to be true from the Holy Scriptures. Things I said I would never do. I'm just trying to tell you. Paul says, follow those who follow Christ. And here's why. Because we are all prone to be easily influenced by the bad examples. But then he gets positive. And he says, let me give you a a really good motivational reason. For why you should follow those who follow Christ. And it has everything to do with our eternity. He's going to tell them this. Follow those who follow Christ because of your heavenly citizenship. This is so good. Your heavenly citizenship. Here's what he's saying. Watch. Because of where you're headed, you should only follow those who are headed in that same direction. Did you get it? Let me show you in verse 20. Some of you shaking your head no, you don't get it. For our conversation is in where? Okay. Say it again. For our conversation is in? Good. From whence also we look for the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. At first glance, it might appear those two verses should be a sermon all amongst themselves, but they actually tie into this context of following the right examples. Because here's the point. Watch here. Paul says... "If." if, if if your heavenly citizenship, if, that, if that's where your citizenship is, it should inform you of who your influences should be. So in essence, he's saying this. Why would you follow worldly-minded people when this world is not your home? You need to mark heavenly-minded people who are living and looking for the Lord's return. In other words, your citizenship should inform your relationships. That doesn't mean we isolate ourselves from anybody that is lost and on their way to eternal destruction. God has enabled us and equipped us and relying on us to reach them with the gospel. But at the same time, our closest friends and, and the most of the, our best time should be spent following those who are headed to the same finish line we are, not taking any shortcuts, not short-sighted in any way, not living for the here and now, living for heaven. I got an illustration. Is Brother Sid in the building? Come up here, bud. Alex Press, come up here for a second. I want to illustrate something to you. You take that side of the rope, Sid. You take this side of the rope, would you? I'm not going to jump rope. Don't get scared. <laughs> I want to illustrate to you what I think Paul's talking about in his admonition for us to be eternally minded, to live for eternity, while at the same time following those who do so. Okay? Imagine this rope goes on forever. I know we can't find a rope that goes on forever, but imagine that it does. It's a 45-foot rope. And I want you to imagine that this rope represents the timeline of your existence. On Alex's end here, and I I, I want you to uh, hold it just like that so they can see it. Okay, how strong are your fingers? You got it? Not only, it's it's impressive. You see this red part? This red part represents your time on earth. I looked it up. The average male in America, 2018 at least, is expected to live 80 years. The average woman is expected to live 84 years. Why do women get to live longer? You ever wonder that? It's unbelievable, it's not fair. But let's just go with the men's statistic. 80 years, this represents 80 years. The white part of this rope represents life after death. It represents your eternity. And again, it should go on forever because eternity never ends. Here's what's crazy. So many people, good people, even good Christians, live for the red when they have all of this they should be living for. How in the world does it make sense for God-fearing, God-honoring people to live for this little speck in time when we have all of this we should be living for? No, no, I'm serious. There's, there's people that spend their money for this and spend their time for this and pursue relationships for this and raise their kids for this. Are you following me? When they should be making all those decisions right here. In other words, when they get their paycheck. Here's the question God-fearing Christians, citizens of heaven, should ask themselves. How does God want me to spend this money? How is this going to benefit others for eternity? Instead, so many Christians say, what can I do with my money? We look in the calendar at the month of February, it has 28 days in it. You know how the Christian, the, heavenly, the citizen of heaven, should think about that, God? How can I spend my time these 28 days for eternity? But yet so many Christians spend their time for the red. What can I do this month for myself? Maybe in seeking relationships. Who you hang out with. Who you date. Who you marry. That should not be filtered through the lens of here and now. But through the lens of eternity. Who you date, who you marry, who you hang out with. You should ask God this. Who gives me the best chance to please you for eternity? What about the way we parent our kids? What we allow them to watch? Who we allow them to be influenced by? By the way, that parents are supposed to be involved in those kind of decisions. Where we allow them to go to school? What do we allow them to look at on social media? Are you hearing me? We make those decisions for this right here. Right here. They can miss church for this. That's a decision right here. We put sports ahead of God, and that's a decision right here. We put their popularity ahead of God, and that's a decision for the red. And we let them work at an early age. I think they should, but they miss all kinds of church and can't be influenced by the right people. And that's a decision for here and now. When we should be looking over not how should my decisions affect and please my child right now, but how will it affect them for eternity? Are you hearing me today? We live for right here and you might be thinking hold that up. You might be thinking how does that how does that affect who I follow? I'll tell you. Because we are drawn as Christians, we're drawn to people who are living for the red. You know why? Because it looks fun. And it's immediate. And it's popular. And it's rich. And it's seemingly successful. That's why we're drawn to those people and we get real short-sighted with our decision-making. We get real short-sighted with how we spend our time, our money, and how we pursue our relationships and parent our kids in life. And here's what happens when Christians, heavenly citizens, try to live in the red. We hear things from, try to live in the white rather, we hear things from people living in the red. Oh, you're old-fashioned. You're not letting your kids do what? Oh, that's a, that, that, that's a decision for eternity. You're, you're one of them holier-than-thou, Bible-thumping kind of people, right? You're spending your money how? You go to church on Sunday nights? Really? During the Super Bowl? Surely not. This place will be empty tonight, right? Nope, it won't. Come back and check. I dare you, come back. You go to church on Wednesday nights, you serve in the nursery? You serve in children's church? You go pick kids up on a bus at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning? You give, you give two hours every Saturday to go visit bus kids who couldn't come to church, otherwise you go and pick them up? You, what? That's so short-sighted. Dude, I golf all day on Saturdays. I work a ton of overtime so so, so that I could live for the here and now. And we're going to get these things and it's going to brainwash us. And here's the temptation to forget that we are only pilgrims passing through this world. And we are on our way to heaven and we should not live for the red. We should live for all of eternity. Those are the kind of people we got to follow. But listen, they're not the kind of people we're naturally attracted to. Thank you, man. You can put the, just drop the rope. Here's Paul's point. He said, be careful who you follow. And only follow those who follow Christ. Because number one, you can be easily influenced by bad examples. And number two, you're a citizen of heaven, not this world. The text of scripture today is teaching us that if we want to finish well, not come short of the prize of knowing and becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to follow those who follow Christ. And here's why. Because who you follow determines how you finish. This is so important. If you agree with God's word today, say amen together. There's a group here, and I I don't want to just put this in as a little insert into the message because I have to. I'm very, very serious about this moment. There's a group here, truly, And your life is all about the red. It's all about you. And when we speak about all this white, and it could go on forever. And you think about how much life you have after this life. In either one or two places, heaven or hell. Some of you, that makes you very, very, very uncomfortable today. Can I talk to you for a moment? I have been right where you are. My heart is beating inside my chest. I'm uncertain about my eternal destination. I've been where you are. Many people in this room have been where you are. And you begin to think, don't you? At a funeral, you begin to think this way? When you visit a loved one who has cancer, is going through chemotherapy, you begin to think this way? When you read something in the newspaper about somebody that had a head-on collision and died at a young age, you begin to think this way? I wonder where I would be if I was them. And maybe you find yourself in the church today, and by the way, you're here because of God's sovereignty. He ordained that you would be here in this moment, here in this message. And maybe for you, you don't know Jesus. Can I tell you this? Knowing Jesus is a relationship. It's not religion. I'm a Baptist on purpose, but you don't have to be to be in a relationship with Jesus. You never have to get baptized to be in a relationship with Jesus, though I think it's a great idea. You never have to take communion to be with Jesus, though it's a great, great practice for the Christian. You never have to give an offering in order to be in a relationship with Jesus, but I hope you do so we can turn the lights on next week. I'm just trying to tell you, it doesn't matter how broken you are. You can come to the altar today. Where the grace and forgiveness of God is awaiting you. And it's very simple. Here's how you come to know Jesus. You admit that you're a sinner. For all sin it comes short of the glory of God. You've messed up and I've messed up. And God does not let sin into his kingdom. The stench of sin would stain heaven. God's not in the presence of sin. And so you know what he did? He sent Jesus to die for your sin. So that you would have a bridge to heaven. And you have to believe that. You have to believe that Jesus died for your sin. That while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And if you believe that in your heart, the third step is very easy. You call upon God to save you. That word calls. You pray. You ask. You cry out to God. Well, what do I say? It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be the perfect words. He understands the cry of the heart. You confess His Lordship in your life. You confess that He is God. You confess that He died on the cross. And you say, God, the best I can. I believe you love me enough to save me. Will you do it? Brother Tyler, I don't know all the Bible answers. You don't have to. Well, let me go get my act together. I'll come back in a couple weeks. You don't have to. You can be saved right now today. Today. There were two or three saved in this place last week. You can be saved today. Brother Tyler, I'm already saved. Then let me address you for a moment. Citizen of heaven, who are you following? When you turn on your TV, when you get into your social media apps, when you go to work, when you come to church, when you're out on Friday night in this community, who are you following in the race of life? Have you taken a wrong turn? Are you going to be 166 feet short of the prize? That's determined by who you're allowing to influence your life right now, Mom. Right now, Dad. Teenagers, who are you following right now? Who are you following? Are they taking you to the right place? Are they take you to the right finish line. Are they teaching the right things about sex, about money, about your purity. About loving your parents? Are those the kind of people you're following in the race of life? If not, you need to turn around and go the direction of a heavenly citizen. And that's why we have a, a time of response where we can come and we can talk to God about that. For God calls this place a house of prayer. And when he looks down at 310 West Pancake, he ought to be able to look down here in the next few moments and see his children praying. Because that's what he wants our service to look like. Would you stand? Every head bowed and every eye closed. for the.